This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bald Move Television podcast. We're the officially unofficial podcast for television in general. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. And today we're talking about the third episode of Matt Weiner's new ha- uh, new house, <laughs> his new series uh, on the House Romanoff. Uh, the Romanoffs. Matt Weiner has a house of special purpose, and he it does. is this series. And it's to torment uh, uh, Christina Hendricks. Apparently. Yeah, I uh, so this was an interesting episode um, in that it w- I wasn't expecting, even though I said last week that like this seems to be like Matthew Weiner taking kind of tropey genre things like romantic comedies and you know suspend and and kind of turning them on their head or doing a different take on it, and I felt like he continued this week with um, a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, like a modern kind of creepy atmospheric dread. You're not sure what's going on kind of horror film. And I thought it was a pretty, pretty striking success and right, you know, aired really appropriately for the season. Um, what did you think, Jim? So I had stronger feelings about this episode than I did the previous two, which I think overall is a good thing. Unfortunately, they're all not all positive. Uh-oh. Um, I think you're right on the money with the horror comparison. This is essentially a horror episode, but it's also, in my opinion, an examination of the weird shit that goes on during the creation of a movie or a TV show. Uh, Just like an examination of onset hijinks, essentially. As I said, a horror show. (laughs) (laughs) It is is a shit show, a horror show, for sure. But here's the thing, though. I felt like this episode tried, and it's weird to say in a show that has hour and a half feature length episodes, but I almost feel like Weiner's trying to do too much with this show. Like, like his, his agent gave him the call and said, Hey, guess what? Amazon bought this, this series. And he's like, what, what somebody bought my show about the Romanoffs. Oh fuck. Um, (laughs) okay. We're not going to get a season two guys. So let's do everything in season one. And I think this episode would have been better if it just stuck to one of those ideas um, and either was a horror movie because I think that's in there or it was an examination of the onset dynamics. Like both of those things come together and you think, okay, well, you've got an hour and a half. That's two episodes length of TV. Why can't we do both? And I didn't feel like they jailed at all. Yeah, it's. It's really interesting because one of my favorite movies or one of one of one of my uh, it's what do you even call favorite because there's like you know most entertaining best but one of the most interesting ones that I really like to rewatch and kind of like you know get things out of on rewatch is I Heart Huckabees okay. uh which is directed by David O Russell and he's a giant asshole apparently uh, like I, I liked this movie and watched it three or four times before I became aware of what an abusive jerk he was on the set. And I became aware of this through a Reddit thread, which highlighted like, uh, a candid video of him just screaming invective at Lily Tomlin of all people, <laughs> while Dustin Hoffman kind of just huddled in the corner, uh, <laughs> sucking his thumb and, I remember it's like one of those things where and, and I grew up in the state of Indiana, right? Uh when and in an era where like Bobby Knight, and if you don't know who Bobby Knight is, Bobby Knight is an asshole uh college basketball coach in a state where basketball means almost everything. And his, you know, tales of bad behavior and abuse of his players are legendary and numerous, and he always defended it because of the results he got and how he was trying to turn these, you know, players into men. Um and so, so like I've always thought, like you know, what at what price do you pay, like a, a superior piece of art? You your know? life, your life in this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like what, what, and what price is like too high? And and I think what I've realized over the fullness of time is like the ultimate retort to guys like David O. Russell and Bobby Knight are like Tony Dungy and uh, Vince Gilligan. 
guys who can get to the highest levels of their sport or their art without being terrible people mm-hmm. like that actually work with an, uh, uh, some sort of uh, process instead of just like, you know, trying to shock and awe people. And, and, you know, Stanley Kubrick, who is not here to defend himself, of course, I feel like falls a lot closer to the David O. Russell, Bobby Knight school of, you know, assholes getting greatness. I mean, he did get greatness. There's mm-hmm. no question that his movies are greatness, but or have greatness in them. But if you can do it without all the abusive and dehumanizing stuff, like, shouldn't we? So I kind of felt like this was a little part and parcel of what he was saying with the horror film, because, you know, imagine if you're an actress who is getting just relentless emotional abuse to try to get a particular performance. And also there's a ghost in the story. Like Uh it's another layer of like, you're being like another psychological layer of like, are you being fucked with? Is this actually happening? Like did any, was there anything supernatural in here? Like, I guess let's start there. Um, do you think anything supernatural actually like and I'm not asking you to prove it or make the case, but do you think anything supernatural act uh, actually happened on this on this set? Uh, yeah, I do. OK, because there's one scene I'll talk about a specific in- instance where I think the episode tips its hand. Uh, there's the scene where I think it's Olivia and Samuel. Mm-hmm. Those were their names, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, are are banging and. Then we cut over to the director's POV in her own hotel room and the windows open, uh, the curtains start rustling. She closes everything up and then the wind whips up within her hotel room. Yeah. I think that is the purest uh, sign we have that something supernatural is going on. Okay, because otherwise this is a P- I mean, it could be just coincidence and there's a windstorm and, you know, we know that the hotel loses power at other at other points in time but Mm -hmm. i think i think you're right i think that like because again a a strictly rational person could say well that's just coincidence but i think you know if if you're allowed to have a little fun with a piece of art that you know it's easy to make the argument that um at least weiner intended it to be you know that open like you're supposed to not really be sure Mm -hmm. till the end um i also just think it's really hard for this director but i also think the director was like losing her mind legitimately too yeah and uh causing things to happen like getting her funding pulled that then had you know had cascading effects um but yeah no i i don't know and i've also seen movies where like this that something crazy happens like a character busting out in song (laughs) oh my Uh, god right you know, it's like you know, it's like I'm watching one right now. Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story. Like that's always lurking in the mar- margin. Someone might break out into song, and I don't because like it's funny because I was reading some reviews and people saw that as just like, well, that's just Matthew Weiner essentially shitting, farting into the camera's face. Right? Well, it's it's his Ken Cosgrove moment, right? Yeah, right. But, but, but this time it's not like a vision. Yeah, or you know, like uh, when um. Uh, who was the, the Cooper when Burt Cooper, yeah. uh, you know, danced as well. Like there's a lot of these type of moments in Mad Men. And I just thought it was really weird to like call bullshit on Matthew Weiner pulling it in this one, you know? Oh yeah. No, I, I more liked that scene than anything. Okay. Um, I, okay. I thought, I mean, I had the same reaction as Christina Hendricks in this, which is what the fuck just happened? And why did they say that was amazing? Uh, but I enjoyed that scene quite a bit, and that is why it was amazing. Because yeah, <laughs> um, I don't yeah. So I I just I thought it was weird. It's almost like, um, I, and I guess this is right. Yeah, I mean, a tool that a director uses in a way that you like it, you describe as enjoyable, and if he uses it in a way you don't like it, you describe it as like you know a head scratcher or what the fuck or like a, a swing and a miss, and like everyone does that. But mm-hmm. to me, I, I felt like this episode. Um, swung and hit a lot more than than it missed in fact i i yeah i i don't know maybe it's because i've i've been watching a shit ton of horror movies this month because of halloween and the spooktacular Cecily and i are working on but i thought it was exactly kind of it was 15 minutes into the episode before i realized this is exactly kind of what i want and there is um i thought there was a, a lot of really good scares like uh the little girl going into the armoire Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought was a legitimately spooky, spooky scene. I thought the seance scene with the director at the at the uh, 
at the what do you call the money maker the the producer's house uh-huh. started off goofy but like i felt like the the wife the russian wife's reaction kind of sold it her genuine horror and fainting and mm-hmm. I, I just just really really liked it hey before we get much further into the episode i want to take a break and talk about things that are going on here at baldmove.com this week uh we've got a new series that is launching called uh super serious film festival and that is where Jim and I kind of select a collection of uh, films uh, that have a theme to talk about. And this this particular season, we're talking about Season of the Cage. And it's kind of a look back at the best of Nick Cage's uh, movie career and the worst of his movie career. And we're going to be doing um, some YouTube specials, some features on it. We're going to be doing uh, like a review of the movie. We're going to be doing live watches of the movie. We're going to, in some cases, rewrite uh, or do sequels of the the movies we're talking about. Uh, We're also going to be doing some like short biopic things about Nick Cage. Just again, we're trying to have a film fest, uh, a very serious one about Nick Cage's career. God damn it. It's about time someone did. The so, trailer would indicate that. I, I would hope it would indicate that. Is the is, so so we're expecting this stuff to start dropping this this Thursday. So be on the proud baldmove.com uh for that. Uh we're still covering the deuce that happens tomorrow and each Tuesday, the uh David Simon HBO series The Deuce. Uh Cecily and I are still doing American Horror Story, having a lot of fun with season eight uh on the American Horror Story feed. And finally uh, pre-sales of my book, Gods of Thrones, that I wrote with uh, religious scholar Anthony Ladon, go on sale on Amazon today. There'll be a link in the show notes. It's essentially a um, pseudo-serious look at the religions of uh, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, uh, Song of Ice and Fire series, uh, and using like comparative religion to kind of examine those and also make jokes and have fun. If that sounds like a good time, check it out. There's a link, uh, or you can search Gods of Thrones Hubbard uh my last name <laughs> on amazon to find it uh so yeah that's that's what's going on here this week the thing about the horror elements that didn't work for me is that i desperately wanted the answers to the questions that it was raising and by the end of the episode i felt like i got none of them uh it, it was a question of whether or not this haunting was real i thought in my mind that it was and therefore i wanted to know more about what was causing the haunting you know they're there's the scene in the dining room where the spirit essentially says, don't make this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you do make this movie, you're cursed and you're going to die. And one of them almost does die in that scene. Yeah. And then Uh, someone eventually does die. Right. Christina Hendricks dies of fright, which Uh she didn't think was possible, Uh uh, which I thought, I I don't know. It was, it was a moment of lampshading. I thought it was nice uh, in retrospect, but I I had so many questions at the end of this about the haunting itself. Like what, what is it that is haunted here? Is it the production? Is it the location? Is it this woman who is claiming to be a Romanov? Is it like, what is it about this situation that is haunted? Yeah. And I just never got those answers. And so I felt like it, it wasn't as satisfying as it could have been. Hmm. I, I mean, I feel like I'm a contrarian here, but I, I would almost argue that getting more answers would like, like come down one side or the other either way and, and, and make it less genuinely spooky. Um, I don't know. I mean, you always get answers in horror movies. Horror movies tell you what the haunting is about by the end of it, right? It starts out mysterious and Ooh, what's going on? Why are these weird things happening? So and, you're but by saying, the end, you always know, Oh, it was, you know, this, this person's mother died here in this horrific way. And now she's back to haunt and, so Whatever. like 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 are you wanting like finality and like they're like let's say they zoom out of the hotel and you can see in the top window there's like a ghost little girl that then disappears in front of the camera like that kind of certainty or like this ghost was actually the grand duchess blah 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 yeah. and she was mo- like you that want kind that of thing really the, the, the latter yeah huh I feel like that would I don't know it felt I I, I worry that if we'd have gotten that it felt a little Scooby Doo for me. Okay. Because um, it happens in almost every horror movie, though. It well, I don't know because like I've seen a lot. Like it, um, I does it happen for like? So let's let's talk about one movie I know we both liked that was like creepy and horror, like The Witch. Uh-huh. How how does it happen in The Witch? Just to find out, you know. Well, you find is... out that the the witches in the woods are like calling in the spirits that haunt this place, right? Like, I guess I don't need to know, like, oh, which spirit exactly it is. Uh-huh. You know, it's enough to know that, oh, it's like this goat thing. <laughs> right. Uh, but 
you find out where the source of the haunting is coming from. And I, I just wanted to know if it was this location, if it was this production, if mm. it was this woman. Like, what is it that, you know, is driving the haunting here? And I never got that answer. Okay, I guess that's... You're right, because it could be the ghost of Romanov's in the hotel. It could be the ghost of Romanov's haunting their descendants. It could be right. lots of different things, I suppose. Okay. All right. I mean, like I said, I, 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 I see your point. I don't, like I said, I, I, and I, I guess I would have to see them do that to see whether it did strike me as Scooby, Scooby-Doo or not. But <laughs> uh-huh. um, what do you think? Because it's been a long time since I've seen Jack Houston um in anything i know i've seen him in a couple things just minor things since boardwalk empire um he is samuel yeah he's the guy he he's uh was richard harrow the guy got half his face blown off he's rasputin in this one uh i thought he was really good and it's also most things i've seen him he's affecting an accent or one another and i guess this is just a speaking voice which i thought was kind of cool too (laughs) but how would you know Right, uh, right. Yeah, I thought he was the best part of the show, honestly. Hmm. Uh, th- absolutely amazing as Rasputin. Uh, mm-hmm. He brought some kind of crazy intensity to it that just really impressed me more than, more than you know, I, I, it's weird because Christina Hendricks doesn't have, in my opinion, a, the, the best material in the episode to work with. Like, she's got mm-hmm. good stuff, but I think she's outshined by Rasputin and by Jacqueline who both get like a lot of really meaty shit to do. Yeah. It, yeah, I do think also that she was a little handicapped because through all throughout the entire episode, really, she had the kind of limp on this kind of um, spoiled and entitled star mm-hmm. uh, where it's so weird because she complains about stuff that's so minor and so ticky tacky in the beginning that, I felt weird because like I, I, I kind of like assigned her into a complainer role. And then towards the middle of the movie, when things happen, it's like, well, shit, this is not cool. This is not right. It took me a while to shift out of that. And then when I was starting to take her seriously, then she started like kind of going with the spoiled movie actor. Uh, like I deserve praise and this and that. And this, these, I, 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 yeah. felt, I don't know, but that's, Maybe that's how people really are uh, that, you know, like like really rich celebrities don't like to be. I I don't know. But it kept getting in the way for me, both from both sides, like this, the stuff that was happening with the spoiled actor uh, who's kind of like the star who's brought in to save the day kept getting in the way of the horror stuff for me. And the tone kept going back and forth between those two things, which is why I say I think this would have been a better like it's almost like you didn't even need to change the runtime of this thing, just separate mm-hmm. it into two episodes hmm. and restructure a couple of things. Hmm. Um, you know, we talked at the very beginning of our discussion, the Romanoffs about one of the things that's, that's um, a wrinkle to this is the fact that like Matthew Weiner has had accusations of behaving poorly, uh, you know, on an offset of Mad Men, you know, mm-hmm. being, uh demanding or potentially abusive there's some sexual harassment uh claims that made that he has not denied uh what what do you feel about the tension between a guy who's writing and directing these things you you always say you you write what you know uh and i felt a couple times it was a little gross because i felt like i was watching matthew weiner trying to figure some things out (laughs) <laughs> that maybe should be discussed with a therapist or the people that he's actually hurt. Uh, you know, I, 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 did, did you think about any of that stuff when you were watching the episode or a little bit? Yeah. I mean, especially it's, it's most obvious in that scene where Samuel goes overboard, uh, yeah. during, during the filming of that church scene. And, yeah. and I, I don't know how far that scene would have gone had uh-huh. she, you know, been less, uh, forceful in her rebuke of him uh-huh. but that was a dangerous situation and yeah i i was thinking about it in that moment for sure yeah and the fact that you know especially when she start start talking about how this you know like paul riser and i guess uh um jack houston talk her out of it by like essentially saying well don't you want to work with like a bleeding edge director and also well i'm sorry and i'll never do that again kind of thing mm-hmm. um but i it's weird because i felt like jack houston his character you said to sam right uh yeah. he signed on like everyone in this production signed on to 
essentially abused Christina Hendricks's character, Olivia, without her consent. Mm-hmm. So, like, his reconciliation with her, I felt, was a little bit more... Uh, yeah, I guess I guess it'd be one thing if that was these were two two professionals that trusted each other. Uh, oh, that's a, that reminds me of something I want to talk about here in a minute. But there's two professionals that trusted each other to kind of like push limits, and one person went a little too far, and then they apologize. And but like the whole layer is like, well, this is yet is this a sincere apology or is this just what he needs to do to keep running the con on her? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that maybe Matthew Weiner's saying is that's that's part of the horror in, in when you're doing this stuff in Hollywood is, you know, the line between what's real and what's not and a director, you know, because we, we talked about this in the Die Hard one Christmas that um, the director actually dropped uh, Professor Snape, <laughs> Alan, <laughs> Alan Rickman. Rickman yeah. Actually dropped him in the harness before, like, they, you know, they're going to drop him at five. And he's like, okay, you know, or drop him at kind of one. He's like, three, two, and they dropped him to mm-hmm. get a genuine look of, oh, shit, I'm falling to my death look of horror from Alan Rickman. Obviously didn't discuss that with Alan Rickman. There's, like, lots of things, and I don't know where the line is. Like, the scene from Aliens or the chestburster comes out. Like, they did that without any kind of rehearsal. It was just, like blood spraying all over these people there were like goat entrails i think involved <laughs> uh-huh. it's clear that in certain cases you can get a performance that's beyond acting mm-hmm. but maybe the actors should make those choices themselves like al like you could be hey alan i want you to f- experience free fall and know what it feels like so you can emote that or act that mm-hmm. um or maybe I don't know. You could take a you could take a page from like um, like BDSM. Okay, <laughs> stay with me here. Like, All right. like pre pre negotiated non or consensual non consent, where then the actor like like so so if a director such as Kubrick wants to fuck with his actors, they all sign his contract up front. They all select safe words so that then they can put themselves into emotionally raw and terrifying situations, but also have ultimate control at the end of the day. Because uh, I, just, I just keep coming back to it. It's not cool to fuck with a human being like that. I just uh, want to know what Alan Rickman's safe word is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit, I should have something. I should have something. I should have something <laughs> Harry Potter for this, but uh-huh. I don't. D- I don't. D- Dumbledore? The problem is yeah. his with his enunciation pattern. It would take him thirty five seconds to say it, and he's already <laughs> had his skin flayed off, or he's he's fallen seventy stories and he's dead. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's the real joke. How about this? Uh, I've got a proposition here. Okay, we pay the actors to do their jobs, and we let them do their jobs because their job is to bring that emotion and that feeling of reality to their character mm-hmm. and the situation and the set. And if they can't do that then why don't we just go out into the world and arrange a string of scenarios in which real people are put into terrible situations and just film it, you know, and call that your movie. Right. If, if you're not willing to let your actors do their jobs, then why, why even pay actors at all? Yeah. The way you say it, I think, just, just terrorize be, Christina be... Hendricks in real life and and yeah. point a camera at her, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, <laughs> what I mean, what are we doing? I, I mean, I guess you're. So you're saying that um, it's like Stanley Kubrick. That is a totally illegitimate way, and I, I guess I, I guess I agree with you. Yeah, just fucking with people like the. It's it's one thing it'd be like uh, staging an MMA fight on UFC and you just grab someone off the street and you put them in the ring and start fighting with them. Like, it's <laughs> uh-huh. only it's only not assault if both guys know what's going on and there's rules like hey I can tap out or my corner can tap me out or the doctor at the ringside can say he's had enough or my manager can or the referee can. Uh, there is none of that stuff on these movie theaters and. I feel like to to thus this to thus far we've said well the results are worth it but yeah I think you're right and, um, and, and I, you're right there there actually can't be any of that you know tapping out or safe mm-hmm. words or anything if you're willing to go along with the director and say I want to get a genuine reaction right because like the the by the time it's happened it's mm-hmm. too late and if you're saying well I can't discuss it with them prior to doing it because uh-huh. it'll it'll dull the reaction it, it will make it inauthentic uh-huh. then there is no opportunity for safely doing that stuff and i i just hmm. couldn't in good conscience put someone through that 
I don't know. I feel like that if they had a safe word, I mean, I'm trying to think of an example of where that would not work. I mean, I guess like you're talking about like a big, crazy, like practical stunt. Um, well, I'm saying so, like, like take the, the Alan already Rickman happened before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to take that Alan Rickman example, right, where he's yeah. dropped from the building. Yeah. If if before that scene you come to Alan Rickman and say we're going to drop you at some time during this countdown, we're not uh-huh. going to tell you when, but we are going to drop you when you least expect it. Won't that change his performance to be kind of anticipating when the drop is going to happen? Like in. I, I would think the director could argue, well, he knows that a drop is coming and therefore he's prepared in some way. I want him completely unprepared. Hmm. Yeah, I guess you're you're right, because by the time you've viol- you, by the time you've uh done something to the person, it's after the fact and they can't like say safe word, go back in five seconds five <laughs> go back <laughs> right. in time five seconds and don't drop me. Yeah. Um it's more of like a, I guess a more of like an emotionally compromising situation, like the fact that the entire crew is going to ignore you. Mm-hmm. Um like you could pre agree to some kinds of treatment or you know, uh, we're all going to go to Navy SEAL training, and the only way to get out is to you just just. And we're going to film it, and, and you can leave by bringing a belt. It's the same as anybody else, like that. Right? Yeah, you'd have to. You, everything would have to be built around that concept. So it's not like Kubrick, where he's just going to fuck with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess that's. Uh, what do you? Where do you stay? Uh, because I've also seen um, where directors. Um, I, I can't remember which one, but someone. There was a oh, it was uh, Saving Private Ryan that like all the stars of that movie had to go through this like really intensive and grueling uh, combat training, except for Matthew Damon uh, hmm. or Matt Damon, as most people, as normal people call him, <laughs> not not Math- as his mother calls him, Matthew Damon, uh, except for him, because Spielberg wanted the other actors to have this kind of like built in resentment towards him that he got to. Just because that's exactly the mindset that the he wanted his uh, soldiers to be in when they had to get tasked to go find his dumbass. So, mm-hmm. like, where is that? Where you just give people a fundamentally different treatment to try to get them in the mindset? Um, because hmm. I, that's I guess an interesting that's case. Not doing something to someone instead of doing something to someone else, <laughs> right? But with the intention of of having an effect on that person. Because, yeah, you're essentially doing something to everyone else except for the person by not doing the thing. <laughs> right. But you're, yeah. but the desired effect is an effect on the person you did nothing to, right? Yeah. So, in effect, you are doing something to them? I I don't know. Huh. I don't know. Because, I, I mean, I'm also aware, look, in everyday life, you can't, you can't, there's no safe word for life, right? Like, you're going to encounter situations where things are going to happen and you have to deal with them. Yes. And I, I'm not... I'm not oblivious to that fact, but I don't think we should try and manufacture situations mm-hmm. just for some effect that we're supposed to be paying these actors to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, I think I can get I think I think I can get down with that. Um so like I said, I to me some of this um the fact that this is a person who's supposedly agreeing to everything and free, it, it felt very much like a, a scary movie where you've got someone that's like, oh, let's go out to this cabin. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And then someone goes missing and a person's like, oh, I want to go home. And they, everyone talks them out. Like, it felt like an in-universe kind of version of the supposedly crazy girlfriend hysterically wanting to drive, just get in the, just, just get in her cars and drive home. And nobody listens to her because they <laughs> want to stay and drink brewskis by the lake. Uh, mm-hmm. meanwhile, the guy at the hockey mask kills another one. Uh, it, it was, I, to me, I, I felt like that was a really kind of clever take on it, that it's like a movie within a movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's an unethical experiment. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think Matthew Weiner thinks about it? What, what side does he come down <laughs> Man, on? I, I don't know. How would I know that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. Let me ask you this, though. Do okay. you think we're in the middle of a Paul Rizesance? I Can, can I use that word? <laughs> and what's so cool about it is uh, he kind of subverted expectations by resubverting them. We expected that he was the bad guy in season two Stranger Things all along. Uh-huh. Turns out, pretty true Blue Riser. Now he's much more like the, the, the fink you want to throw out an airlock in Aliens. Yeah. 
He's behind the scenes doing things because it's all going to be worth it in the end. When we get this big weapons contract with the face bursters or chest huggers, uh, it's all going to work out in the end. And that's that's what he's doing to Christina Hendricks right up until the time she dies of fright. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned you mentioned that you kind of subtly the the lampshading of that. I really I thought that was pretty pretty effective to have the whole story saying like you can't die of fright and then have the audacity uh, to kill someone just out of fright at the end. Right. No, I I kind of liked it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it does make you wonder. This this Paul Rizosans makes me wonder: is this a chicken and an egg thing? Like wh- where does where does the chicken fit in? Where does the egg fit in? Because like okay, there's there's a mad about you TV movie reboot coming i don't know if you're aware of that no i'm not aware of this and so it was just it I, I don't know when it was announced but i looked on imdb it's announced uh so what what happened here was it like a studio the who owns the rights to mad about you is like okay we want to reboot mad about you it's time for it let's make paul riser into a thing again <laughs> or was it the other way around they saw paul riser becoming a thing again and we're like oh we should do a mad about you reboot i find i find that the question latter. very interesting i think it's i think it's definitely the latter you think so because we're like 20 years out from mad about you and fuck my parents love that show yeah to, to do a reboot or or a tv movie of it i think would make some money right now yeah i i so. think i think stuff like that like the same way that um the same this is almost the exact same thing that happened to um pulp fiction guy uh the saturday Night Live fever guy john travolta oh yeah that I what I think happened in there. Well, it's it's a matter of public record there that um, you know Quentin Tarantino, bit, you know, grew up in the era that uh, Travolta was big in, and when he was writing his crazy pop culture mashup movie, um, you know, gangster noir movie, he's like, wouldn't it be awesome if I got this guy and so crazy and random. And he does it, and because of his actual love of the material and passion for the project and unironic, but also ironic love for the character, he blows up. It's the perfect vehicle for them. I bet it's the same thing happened to Duffer Brothers. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, you know, 20 years down the line, and they're like, you remember this guy was such a fucking twerp in this particular role, and everyone, and, and we're going to fucking subvert it, and won't that be hilarious and clever? And it was such a perfect show off of showcase of his abilities that now people remember, oh, yeah, Paul Reiser, he's he's done things <laughs> right. Like it's it's a weird like uh, did the dog wag the tail or did the tail wag the dog? I hmm. I, I think originally the da- the dog did, in fact, wag the tail, but then the tail took over and ho- <laughs> Hollywood's like there's a buck to be made here. Oh, my God, it's 20 20th anniversary. Mad about you going off the air. Let's reboot that movie. Right. Does this the, the, the real question I think you're burying, though, is. Hmm. Are we going to also get a corresponding hunt sauce I mean, we have it, it almost it's almost like a chain reaction that's going to happen, right? I mean, you're going to see, oh, shit, Mad About You movie. Oh, Helen Hunt. Oh, she's really good. Yeah, yeah we should cast Helen Hunt more. Reboot, reboot, tornado, uh, tornado, <laughs> Twister. <laughs> and it's Re- called reboot. It's called, it's called more Twister. You find out the Bill Paxton, the extreme had his love for tornadoes re kindled <laughs> and their love is rekindled and he gets just like as a little sucked girl into, mm. they go down to a storm shelter got too close to a tornado and he gets sucked out of the barn door just <laughs> with philip seymour hoffman <laughs> is it gonna be they, is it is it gonna be a cg version of them because yeah totally oh, you can shit. do that you can cgi a cow you can cgi uh, paxton and a uh, huff and, and they're they're <laughs> And Philip Seymour Hoffman is holding on to Bill Paxton's ankle as he gets sucked mm-hmm. out. It's like everyone that's died in the making of those films just gets just just gets sucked out. What, what if there's a new category, out. new category of hurricane? So or, or of tornado rather. So <laughs> the Hoffman scale, right? Like he gets sucked out and he's like, oh, it's an it's an F five, and the doors bust open and he starts getting sucked out. Hoffman grabs his leg, mm-hmm. uh, and then he go he shouts back, oh no, it's a six, and he, they both get sucked right out. <laughs> Right, right, right. How many how many Hoffmans <laughs> is required to hold down an object from being sucked up by a twister? And that's the oh my god, we've got a ninety three Hoffman headed right down to Tulsa. What are we, we gonna got do? It. We got it. Uh all right. I didn't expect to reboot the Twister franchise starting uh, with this Romanoff's talk, but we're here. Uh and we got we gotta deal with it. What do you think? Because, like speaking of I Heart Huckabees, I forgot to mention the reason I started making this connection, um, 
was because Isabella Hoopert, the person that plays the crazy director, uh, was one of the stars of I Heart Huckabees, and she plays kind of like a similar inscrutable hard ass. Um, I wonder if Matthew Weiner had made that connection too. Um, and then like, hmm. you know, cause I, the, you know, you're saying like, Oh, how could you ever know that? I'm trying to think like, if you could look at the meta DNA of this project to see if you could, is that like secretly condemning, uh, uh, Oh, Russell's, uh, the, the directorial bullshit, or is it like saying, well, hey, if you want an I heart Huckabees, you gotta, you gotta scream at Lily Tom- <laughs> Tomlin. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Let me ask you this other question. Mm-hmm. Is is there a curse on Mad Men that only um only Peggy can go on to have like serious important roles in other movies? Only Elizabeth Moss uh can have because like I I keep seeing uh John Hamm try at different projects and most of them are swings and misses. I've seen Christina Hendricks in a few She's in Happen Leonard, which I actually enjoyed the first season quite a bit. Uh, she was in, wasn't she in Driver? Yeah, she had a part in Driver. Yes. But I, I would have thought after Mad Men that her and John Hamm, if no one else, would blow up into celebrities, like big celebrities with lots of stuff. Why can't people find things for her to do? Because I found her, even when she was pretending to be an average actress, I thought she was uh, just really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a damn fine question. I, I mean, there are a lot of people of Mad Men pedigree that I would ask that question about. Vincent Carthizer, I thought was mm. amazing as Pete mm-hmm. Campbell. And I mean, maybe he was so good that no one can take him seriously as not Pete Campbell anymore. Right, um, right. But uh, yeah, I don't think John Hamm or Christina Hendricks have that problem. And they've been getting casted in things, but I don't, I don't know why. It's just the pick of their scripts has been unlucky. Or something. Um, and Maybe I they got think... so much money and prestige and Emmys that they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're only going to take chances on interesting things like Baby yeah. Driver and Driver and things Bad that times, involve driving. Bad <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> things that involving <laughs> classic cars. They had a driving pact. They did. They did. Uh, really poor choice of verbs to base your movie career around. I don't um, know how they're going to make it work, but when they reboot Driving Miss Daisy, it's going to be John Hamm and Christina Hendricks. Right. I don't know how they make that work. Yeah, speak, speaking of Carthizer, that's another one. Uh, because there are so many oily shitheel roles to play, villain ro- Like, even if you got pigeonholed to be this weaselly bad guy character, oh my god. There's so mm. many, like, there's so many of those. Like, there's so many Paul Reiser roles <laughs> to go around. And Paul Reiser's been semi-retired for 20 years, as you pointed out. So, like, yeah, you know, and now, and now we're back to Reiser again? <laughs> well, I mean, Vincent... Carthizer, unfortunately, you know, his his time to shine was right in the middle of the Rizosance, mm. which I, I think is is squashing the Carthizosance mm-hmm. that we were supposed to have seen. Mm-hmm. So 20 years from now, Vincent Carthizer, he's got his moment. Assuming uh, there isn't a similarly named person within a, a renaissance at the time. Yeah. No, I, I, but, but back to the serious, I just thought that uh, Miss Hendricks was really, really good in this. And I kept on thinking, like, man, with all the shit that's pumped out by Netflix and Amazon, it's kind of crazy that, you know, three three years have gone by without her. Well, but that's, again, she's been working other stuff that people haven't been watching, like Heppen Leonard and, yeah. uh, and the other. Bi- so maybe maybe it's uh, it's my expectations. Um, and, and I think, funnily enough, uh, Harry Crane has had mm-hmm. one of the best uh, roles, essentially, for me uh, since Mad Men, which is the ex-husband, I guess, now on uh, Glow of mm. of one of the main characters. Not not uh, Bree's husband, but her best friend's husband. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, he's really good in that. Kind of, kind of playing a similar guy, though more serious. Yeah. Yeah, he had a really good turn on uh, love. Um, that uh, weird kind hmm. of like romantic comedy with uh, Gillian Jacobs or Gillian Jacobs. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he's done some really kind of interesting, cool work as well. So maybe again, they're probably all like super, super rich and famous and have a bunch of Emmy golds on their shelves. So maybe they're just like, hey, you know, we don't have to, don't have to get get out there and and uh, slop you hogs. Uh, I think Matthew Weiner also has 
a point to make about reading lines, quote unquote reading lines. Mm-hmm. Nobody in Hollywood ever reads lines. They just fuck. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's code for fucking. Uh, th- there's some interesting stuff with that they're doing with this horror movie stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I, I found the scene where she kind of walks down this staircase that is nearly identical, though not exactly identical, mm-hmm. to the staircase that gets her to the lobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be kind of almost a shining moment where, mm-hmm. y- you know, the the hotel kind of shifts and the hotel's weird and the architecture doesn't quite make sense, but it's the weird hotel. Uh, I thought that was nice. Oh, another nod to Kubrick. I'm telling yeah. you, Matt, is I'm, I'm going to figure out which, which of his thumbs is weighted on which side of the scales <laughs> here, Jim. I think so. Uh, and, and at some point throughout this movie, I, I was questioning like, okay, is somebody going to actually be dead who we think is alive here? I think they were setting kind of that stuff up because there's a call with Christina Hendricks' mother, who at the time were like, oh, she's just calling her mom and uh-huh. her mom doesn't answer. But later on, we find out that her mom just died. Uh-huh. And yeah, you can look at that and say, okay, she's seeking some kind of comfort in her mother's voice on her answering machine. Yeah. Or you can say, is Christina Hendricks actually like dead here and the director is her mother? And it's like mm. some kind of parable about, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever childhood abuse or something i i couldn't tell you but none of that ever comes to fruition so i guess yeah or or i was expecting maybe a full-on possession which Uh maybe happened with the director being possessed by the the countess or the grandmother of whatever uh Mm -hmm. that was cool because there i i also kept on thinking that maybe she was like going through some kind of um time portal because i remember when she like first arrived on set and there's like shoving those bodies into the mass grave i kept on remarking like man that looks so real mm-hmm. but that'd be hollywood right if you came in the middle of the woods and they were filming the romanovs or doing the romanovs uh, from 100 feet away they that the whole thing would look identical right yeah because uh, that's just how good special effects are but there's a lot of things i thought were so realistic um i like like the other thing um and there's a lot of things I thought kind of hinged maybe on a little bit too precision coordination, like uh, Sam getting abducted, just like Romanov, uh, just like Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what if Christine Hendricks didn't come to the window and look? You know, that, I, I mean, like, I, I want to say the effect. I, I want to say that Samuel was not always in on this or something. Something along those lines, like that is that is her witnessing his version oh, of what happens her to her shit. at the end of this. So they were going yeah. to go take and then to have him film his death scene, right? That he already saw the result of getting dumped in the river. Okay, all right, okay. That's, yeah. that's just my thought on it. All right, that makes us that makes a lot more sense. So she didn't really need to see that, but the fact that she did makes it all a creepier, you know? Right, right. Because and then especially since they her end of it was he was supposed to say goodbye without warning to kind of get her into mindset of the Tsarina who mm-hmm. got I guess her lover advisor spiritual whatever he was uh, ripped from her uh, yeah and I, I guess we should talk about like the resolution because the house of special purpose is the name for the place where all of this shit went down uh, the yeah. executions which is you know it lines right up with what we see in the intro right they're essentially filming the intro in this episode both with her kind of running through the woods uh to to try and escape what's happening here and also that execution scene Mm -hmm. yeah i thought it was interesting because um i i guess i didn't know that the beginning credits of the romanovs were literally a restaging of how our best our best historical guest thinks the thing actually went down because mm-hmm. I, I actually I, I looked up House of Special Purpose. So that's part of the job, and I got into the ex- I read the entire Wikipedia article <laughs> on the execution of the Romanovs because it's fucking oh, fascinating. Like you know, uh, not for nothing, Dan Carlin did a whole like I can't remember if it was like one of his short or their full on hardcore histories about it because it's it is a fascinating story full of a lot of really interesting uh, and crazy characters like Rasputin, for example. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean it. It seems like the beginning of this, ep- the beginning, the credit sequence is a literal restagement of exactly I- what eyewitness apor- accounts uh, say happened, down to like the details <laughs> of how the how uh, the 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 Nicholas wasn't Nicholas the Czar, how yeah, the Czar so. reacted, how was the his wife reacted, how the kids reacted, this you know, and then they sh- kind of went full on with this, where the soldiers going around and 
bayoneting children and shooting others in the head. Like, it was such a fucking crazy operation that wasn't properly planned and uh, <laughs> just slipshod and way more violent and cra- crazy than it probably should have been or had to been. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it, it kind of made me uh, watching the credit sequence because uh, I also read an article where there's a, you know, a quote unquote real life Romanoff descendant who's kind of pissed that uh about the credit sequence especially that like you know here's the murder of her family and i'm like yeah i don't know i don't know if it's your great great grandmother how much trauma how much trauma is that real but right yeah it's uh it's it's got a whole it's got a whole other it's got a whole other angle now for me yeah uh i i did want to ask you one final question from my side here uh okay what do you make of everybody telling olivia's sweet dreams throughout this whole episode it said like five six times that was everyone's safe word except for her and they just blown out <laughs> maybe um, maybe i don't know is it, it, it i i it's probably i i have no idea do you have a i, I mean i can speculate do you have something no, that you've actually I, given thought to no i don't i was hoping you would have an answer for me okay no i mean my first thing i thought of is, is it's just another thing to make her think things are weird yeah like what would you do if you went to like a like a new job and everyone mm-hmm. said a specific phrase that's not like a company logo or something every single time they said goodbye to you i would think like, oh my god i've stumbled into another cult I'm out. Right? <laughs> no, i know i know i know exactly what this feels like yeah uh, i'm out i'm out before the snake handling and the drinking of kool-aid <laughs> unless it's just real kool-aid i'll take some of that on my way out you know yeah. i'll have a drink to go but uh is there anything else you want to talk about, or should we get to feedback? Let's get to feedback. Hey, before we get into feedback, I want to talk about our club at club.baldmove.com. And it's kind of exciting to talk about it this week, because we got a whole new feature, the Super Serious Film Fest Season of the Cage. First movie, one of Nick Cage's good action films, uh, Michael Bay's The Rock. Uh, we got a lot of coverage. We got a an in-depth review and discussion of the film we did a a remake with uh, our in-house director, Guy Ferrari. Uh, not a remake. We did a sequel to mm-hmm. The Rock called The Clock that we're going to do a script, a script read and pitch for. Uh, we did a live watch for the film, uh, and two of those features are club only. If you want to hear our sequel to The Rock, The Clock, if you want to see our live watch of the film and our reactions to it uh, and our banter, you have to be a club member. Uh, and you can sign up at club.baldmove.com and get a preview of all the different things you can get, all the benefits, all the exclusive content, all the special features and privileges of being a club member. You can sign up and also uh, try it 30 days risk-free. Go to club.baldmove.com and thanks in advance for your support. Yeah, we've got uh, a decent amount of uh, conversation happening here in our email boxes and on the forums. Uh, you can send to both at, for- at uh, forums.baldmove.com if you want to get in. Uh, and talk to our fellow fans about the Romanovs, or you can send in an email to tv at baldmove.com. First up, Arcroft. Uh Was that episode all over the place? I like the constant Sweet Dreams references because of the song, and uh, sort of bought how they were trying to get a better performance out of Christine's character by mirroring the Romanov history, but the whole thing with the interview and the investors threw me. I felt like some part of it must have gone over my head. Um, so... When I first was trying to figure out whether this was a spook film uh, or whether it was all in Christina's head or – and I was trying to think of, like, something that, like, would make it all make sense, this scene kind of bugged me. But then when I started realizing that perhaps either the director is being possessed by an actual ghost, which answers mm-hmm. all the questions, or she's just losing her mind. Like, she's so far up her own ha- ass with this directorial technique that she's – she's throwing away funding for her project because she knows she can get the last bit done kind of guerrilla style anyway. Uh huh. Cause it happens at like a point in the film where things are wrapping up. So yeah. I and, and I think it works both ways. I don't think you missed it. I think it's also, you're supposed to feel confused and the, your first experience with watching this episode is to feel confused and uneasy, which is, you know, the mindset that like a horror director wants to put you in. So mm-hmm. I think it worked. I think it would work. You're just, you're just, uh, you you weren't expecting a, a straight up horror film from Matthew Weiner. Yeah, that that's fair. When he started introducing the horror elements, I thought, boy, this doesn't feel anything like what I expected this show to feel like. 
You know, I, I, I will say that had this thing come out in like February, I think this episode would have thrown me a lot more. Huh? Yeah. But you know, every time I walk out my front door, there's like these ghosts confront me on my steps. Uh, there's bloody handprints on my window. I've been watching like a scary movie other every, every other night. It just like I instantly gro- started grooving with the episode. So I feel mm-hmm. like it, it's it's like any other experiment with some kind of crazy trippy psychedelic substance. It's it's all about the set and setting. And here, uh, it's set being the week before Halloween. And, you know, my mindset going in because of that was all was all just perfect for it. So Mm. uh, it is funny because I don't think we actually discussed this in the main pod, but I read a lot of places that this was a love it or or hate it episode that like Mm. it seemed like the critical consensus was either this is the weakest of the three uh, episodes that the, uh, the critics were allowed to screen or the strongest of the three. And there wasn't any middle ground. Uh, sounds like you're you're occupying that middle space. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of middle on all of these episodes. Like I, and I discussed you know my my feelings last time about mm-hmm. just the show in general, how I have mm-hmm. zero connection to or desire to see anything about the Romanovs. But mm-hmm. you know, now that I'm in this, I guess like my response to these has been pretty muted across the board. Uh, Majam says, I like this, but it's very strange and a stressful kind of watch. It seems like the director lady had a lot of writing on the fact that Christina Hendricks wouldn't change out of her costume all day at the end. Uh, <laughs> Paul Reiser continues to prove he's great at playing amiable assholes. Um, it, that That's kind of similar to how I thought about the Jack Houston scene where he got snatched um, out of character. What? So I guess my question is would it wreck the director's plan if Christina Hendricks hadn't changed out of her Zarina or her Empress costume? Because when her movie can just survive the czar breaking into Elvis song, unironically, Mm -hmm. if, if Christina Hendricks showed up in her like, you know, out and about clothes i feel like it would just been some kind of like oh well this means that the empress has already embraced modern life and is is torn from her you know she's already (laughs) she's already rejected her aristocratic ways and it would just be more just for like oh my god this is so interesting navel gazing masturbation type of crowd which right i'm part of she's the stand-in you know for the future of the romanoff family (laughs) and it's being gunned down in this scene right like yes Sure, there's a lot of interpretation the you can add. focus of the proletariat rage that was <laughs> sure. coursing through the country. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing that could have possibly changed it that would have made the director think, right, this this isn't what I wanted. Yeah, and man, I get I got such a just weird vibe by this director the whole time. I don't I don't know where I'm supposed to come down on her. It's like, is she losing her mind, or is this all a put on for the fact that? You know, she's trying to get this performance in the final scene. Is this like, is she actually a really awful director who's doing really stupid things with a bad movie or is, or a bad show? Or is she actually a genius who's doing really avant-garde interesting things? Like, we don't see the final product, so I can't judge it, but I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm constantly asking those questions and I never got an answer. See, I was actually thinking about how you... (laughs) It's so funny because after that, I'm like, I don't think Jim, I said, I don't know what Jim will think about the episode, but I don't, I absolutely guarantee he would hate the movie she's making. Probably. Because it yes, felt very it's... David Lynch, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, you'd be like, oh, I'm watching a period piece, and now this guy starts singing Elvis uh, Presley, and now, like, the Zarina's <laughs> getting murdered, and she's in a tracksuit. Like, what the fuck, you know? Uh-huh. I can the sometimes get into anachronisms. It's the right. the vagueness of yeah. the the meaning of the anachronisms that sort of gets me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, you can make that work like the Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes version of Romeo and Juliet, right? Or, or uh, what's the what's the Heath Ledger uh, night movie? Night Tale? Night's Tale? Uh, yeah, Night's Tale. That I really loved, you know, and it's uh-huh. got contemporary music in it and these people are engaging with it. It's not just something where they, they evoked a mood. They actually used yeah. it in the plot. And uh-huh. I actually really enjoyed that, so... Yeah, it's not where you're watching a conventional movie and then it just swings, it just dips into modernity just as a what-the-fuck moment. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to Rennie. 
I was completely absorbed by this episode while I was watching it, but I really don't know what to think about it. If it's all fake, then why did they st- show stuff like Jacqueline, who's a director, talking to herself or a ghost alone in a room and the wind blowing through all of her papers when the windows closed? Um, I mean, talking to yourself, if she could also just been going crazy, having a psychotic break, having a manic depressive episode. Yeah, for sure. That's why I point to the wind as the, the key mm-hmm. there, not the mm-hmm. talking to no one. Right. Uh, I'd also buy it if it was just one person, a really sick person trying to gaslight Olivia, but finding it possible to leave that every last person from her agent through to directors uh, and all the actors down to even receptionists is fine with the fact that they're essentially trying to drive a woman mad. And for what? Just to get a better performance out of her? Why not just hire a different actress? <laughs> um, yeah. I will say that I was kind of with that except for the the um receptionist eventually broke like the first like serious pushback she got from christina Hendricks, she's like look man they just told me to be mean to you okay mm-hmm. uh so if if that hadn't happened i think it would have bothered me a lot more but just the fact that like people not really involved in in the in the performance um that weren't completely wrapped up in the vision the director of the vision because like you know her assistant director and uh her crew you could tell they were like totally in the tank for her yeah but like the reception at the hotel is like look i'm sorry you know what what do you want from me i was just doing my job same the same way i presumed you were Mm. so um dimmick Things that happened in episode three were real and not real, and I found it glorious and uncomfortable to watch. One of the earliest scenes where they were shooting to dispose of the Romanov corpses set the tone for me. Even by movie magic standards, those bodies felt way too real. Yeah. Blurred their... That's the thing. Like I've never seen a dead body dropped into... I guess I have with the Holocaust stuff, but like for those sure. were emaciated, and they already... like Those didn't look like real bodies because these are like very twisted and grotesque forms that have been, you know, result of this cruelty and, and, uh, deprivation they've been through where these look like just people, mm-hmm. you strip them out of the clothes and one of them's got a pot belly. Like, I just thought it was like, yeah, it, 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 I remember me and Cecily debating whether it was actual dead bodies or like a fake <laughs> dead body, because <laughs> I've seen like walking dead where they have mass graves and they don't usually go through, you know, like having a bunch of different body types. Like you don't have like a fat one and then a little skinny one. And this person's got big feet. And then they were like paying attention to the details. You mean within the fiction of the the episode, right? Yes. Not like whether Matthew Weiner actually no, no. got a bunch of cadavers and dropped them in a hole. No, no. <laughs> okay. I mean, although if, if I found out he did that, that would definitely <laughs> sort my debate about what kind of director he is. Yeah. Uh, a criminally insane one, it turns out. But yeah, no. Um, they continue, this episode asked a lot from the audience to buy into the premise, including an international star would travel to a foreign set alone without even a personal assistant. I, I definitely think that would, that I didn't have a problem with that because this the meta story is Christina Hendricks is trying to get over a little bit of a slump and also be taken more seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like yeah. trying to go for more, more serious roles, kind of like, uh, like Megan, like, a, like Megan Fox, you know, she was a transformer girl. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Actually, I haven't paid attention to her career. I don't know where she was. But if, if she tried to go into like a super serious film, that would be Megan Fox trying to turn the corner from eye candy to, oh, take me seriously as. And I feel like that's what they were trying to do with with uh, Hendrix's role. Mm-hmm. So I guess I buy her stepping out of the comfort zone a bit. Uh, that a successful in-demand actress carries only one cell phone with her with no other electronic device, not a laptop, a digital camera, an iPad in sight. Uh, this is a dead giveaway that people making a show are at least two generations behind in terms of technology. <laughs> I remember A. Ron Hubbard exasperated during the X-Files coverage with how uh, Scully never did or did her web search the same way his dad did, probably because Chris Carter had no idea how the internet works. <laughs> I think that's probably a right-on criticism of Matthew Weiner. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's he's of a different generation, but I also yeah. think so much happens on phones now that you don't need other devices. What do you need yeah. an iPad for? What do you need a laptop for? I've started like, unless like this last trip, I took my laptop with me because I knew I was going to have to finish up some book work. And at the time before that I had to do is, but yeah, if, if I only take my laptop, if I know I'm going to have to do extensive typing or production work, most of the time, right. like I can even do, I can support, I can respond to emails. I can take, you know, um, keep up on like any kind of outages or downage and coordinate that with just a cell phone. So why bring, why bring shit that you could lose or break? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But as soon as Christina flashed a radiant smile, they continue, I just wanted to believe whatever she was selling, and the creepy, gorgeous hotel also reminded me of all the stories about how Stanley Kubrick, with the help of the whole production team, basically psychologically tortured Shelley Duvall continuously to get the performance he wanted from The Shining. That right, couldn't I have forgot been a about that. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think they're right on. Uh, also, Richard Harrow from Bar- Boardwalk Empire. Samuel definitely was the insufferable son of a bitch in the episode, but the best line has got to be, you're blaming it on the method? Um... <laughs> No, I, I really enjoyed seeing him. I'd like to see a heck of a lot more of him. Um, I, I want to ask you something before we get to the last email. Um, now that you've seen this season of the Romanovs, this is probably a bad time to ask you because I still don't think you're sold on it. Um, I, I first thought, like, there's no way there'll be another season of this when I saw the, you know, it seemed like it was very firmly going to be a one-shot but now that I've seen him be able to essentially use this to tell anything from a, rom- a rom- rom-com to a horror movie with adult sensibilities, I guess I'm a little bit more interested into seeing kind of what this like Twilight Zone aspect of this work could be. Yeah, I I still don't know if we're going to get a season two of this. I think it's like <laughs> ultra niche You it know, is. it's it's like like I've said again and again, I would not have much interest in this show. I wouldn't have any interest in this show if it wasn't Matthew Weiner. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that just the name of Matthew Weiner can support uh, an online streaming show that mm-hmm. might cater to a younger audience than, you know, you'd have talked about the generational gap mm. of Matthew Weiner and cell phones. I I think that exists online and streaming platforms, and I don't know that it's going to be well-served being on Amazon Prime. You're right, because, like, I do think like my dad would be inclined to try this out because yeah. of the Matthew E. Weiner connection and enjoying Mad Men, but going from basic cable to Amazon Prime, you know, he's not going to watch it on his laptop, and that's the only conceivable way he could figure out how to watch it. He's not right. going to get a Roku box. What the hell is a Roku box? <laughs> how do I get my computer on my television? What the fuck? Now, fuck all this stuff. And I feel like we're the two youngest people who engage with Mad Men. <laughs> So yeah, like, we were we were right on we were right on that cusp for sure. Yeah. So good good luck to him. I just man, I don't see a future of a second season for this show. Um, Julia Juliana rather uh, has a personal story to share. While nearly all, all of the Romanov characters in the series are grating and obnoxious, I must say that I have some compassion for them. I have a smaller example of the same poisoned and diluted thinking in my own family. Unfortunately, I've seen how it leads people who should otherwise be happy, enjoying the best America has to offer, being completely miserable and looking for something that they never actually had. My grandfather is 98 years old and was born in what is now the Czech Republic. His family were descendants of the middle tier of the regional nobility, and by the interwar period of the 20th century, they owned around 30% of an industrial and automotive company. When Germany invaded, my grandfather watched his parents' execution from the window of their mountainside home. He somehow managed to escape to the United States with his sister and aunt uh, through a story that, if even 10% true, would make an amazing movie. After serving in the U.S. Navy during World War II and becoming an American citizen after the war, he attempted to go back and recover his family business interest. After getting chased out by the communists, he returned to the U.S., got married, had some kids, and has a long and successful career at GE. As far as I'm concerned, he can be as upset about the war or about the way history turned out for the rest of his life. It's his right, and I never complain about it. But the problem is it's affected the rest of the family. Any and every indignity that could be solved with either money or status is used as a reason to complain about how if the Germans and Russians hadn't screwed us, we would be rich and powerful. This thinking is moronic and endlessly depressing. It drives me crazy as my father, aunts, uncles, brothers, and cousins use it as an excuse for everything minorly annoying that they have to endure. For example, recently a flight my brother and I were on was delayed, and his comment was, you know, if it wasn't for the commies and Nazis, we probably would have a private jet. (laughs) All of these people went to college. They all have relatively privileged lives and ended up in the 10% of America uh, than in their dreams at the top 0.1% of Central Europe. These stories have led them having unhappy, be, to be unhappy even when every objective measure they should be quite satisfied with how things turned out. Um, I, I mean, I think that's fascinating. That's probably why Matthew Weiner is making the series, right? Yeah. To explore that pathos a bit? Yeah, and it strikes me as something that would be absolutely hilarious the first few times right like sure sure how this mundane thing was affected by something that happened hundreds of years ago right Uh, but the 900th time yeah no i get it it's it man to to 
totally wrap your identity up in something that didn't happen in your lifetime or your parents' lifetime or your right. grandparents' lifetime is right. Yeah, especially when like if the if the Nazis and commies didn't do it for you, look around. There's not any nobility left. You know, uh-huh. there's like there's a few collected in zoos. But the history of the tw- the Industrial Revolution is the destruction of that no no you know that that uh, uh, you blue b- blood way of life and the idea mm-hmm. that you know also wealth tends to evaporate over two or three generations anyway like even that hadn't happened just through your own uh, you know ancestors mismanagement you probably would have squandered it away it's I don't know I. I, I think it's funny because, like, I, I could see, like, being ironic like her cousin there. Like, it would be funny that anything minor happened in my life to be able, like, you know, those, if it wasn't for those damn Nazis and commies. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's like I missed my lift. Uh, I, I, lift is unavailable in my area. It's like, you know, if it weren't for the Nazis and commies, I'd have a private driver and I wouldn't have to do this. You know, <laughs> Lisa picking me up in her fucking Azure, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's when it, it's I, internalized and it's not a joke is yeah. when it gets really sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when it seems like um, that's the other thing is they do feel like it. it you know, they're painting a picture, uh, Juliana here, as of the family being pretty comfortable. And uh, yeah, sounds like li- it. living in a country where not everyone is that comfortable, and saying, "Oh, if not for the Nazis and the commies," mm-hmm. I appreciate the story, and it, it's also interesting because um, you know you've seen kind of both sides of that that in in the series so far. You've got the the first uh, French lady who is completely tied up in that. Um, and she's kind of like a blend of both, I guess, because she actually had real-life trauma. She's also had this kind of, like, you know, toxic longing. And then you had Corey Stoll, who didn't seem like he was wrapped up in it, but had it genetically. I, It'll be interesting. I, again, I'm waiting to see if there's something that's going to tie all this stuff together and make a grand point about what Matthew Weiner thinks about this in some sort of socially and important way or if this is just him telling his stories in a way he wanted to and this seemed like a flexible framework that he could talk investors into throwing some money at all all the thematic questions will be answered in season two (laughs) that will never be made exactly because nobody's watching the show uh all right that's it uh we'll be back tomorrow to talk about the deuce uh, you can send feedback to the Romanovs or the Deuce or anything we talk about on Bald Move TV to TV at baldmove.com for a chance to be read on air. You can also discuss this with our fellow fans on the forums, forums.baldmove.com. That's all we got to say right now. Uh, until tomorrow or next week, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you later. <laughs>